Good afternoon and welcome to Digital Healthcare, keeping the lights on and consumers happy. A Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Sirius Computer Solutions and VMware. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to some participation uh, from our audience. You can send your questions or comments in in the Q&A box, and we'll take those later in the program. And we're going to do a little poll later in the program, then we'll have our panelists guess at the results. So that should be some fun. A uh, nice way to view the screen, if you click in the top center, get, a, get that into side-by-side -side mode, and then you can adjust the divider to get the video boxes and the slides, the size you want them, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35 to 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Dr. Lee Milligan, SVP and CIO at Asante Health System, Aaron Miri, CIO at Dell Medical School and UT Health Austin, and Vic Nagy, Director, Healthcare and Managed Services with Sirius Computer Solutions. So let's jump right into our conversation. Um, can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Lee, let's start with you. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Lee Milligan. Uh, I'm the CIO for Asante Health System in Southern Oregon. We serve about nine counties in Southern Oregon and Northern California. We're a three hospital system, uh, just over a billion dollars a year in annual revenue. So still on the small side. Uh, we have an ACO, we have a uh, medical group. Uh, and uh, as CIO, I oversee um, all technology for the organization. For us, it's um, informatics, it's technical services, it's analytics. It also includes HIS or medical records. Very good, thanks Lee. Aaron? Good morning, Aaron Meary, Chief Information Officer for the University of Texas at Austin uh, for the Dell Medical School and UT Health Austin, basically the entire healthcare district here. Uh, we are a, as you can imagine, large academic healthcare research institution. Um, where we do have a medical school, so my appointment is over the medical school, over the clinical enterprise, over our research divisions, and our community impact, which includes our social workers and a lot of the folks working with the community uh, for those who are maybe disenfranchised or just uh, the indigent care. Um, and so from a scope of uh, purview, in terms of everything IT, everything data, everything, everything systems is mine. And so we here had to respond quickly and agilely, not just for the city response, uh, especially when it came to COVID and all the things that we do from our hospitals, but also students, right? Returning all the kids back to campus this fall, the return of Longhorn football, which was interesting by itself, and all the things around that that were necessary to make that happen. Um, it's been uh, quite, the, quite the fun journey for the past two years I've been here. Look forward to talking about it. Very good, very good, thank you. Vic? Hi, everybody. I'm Vic Nagji. Um, I am a director on the healthcare team here at Sirius Computer Solutions. Uh, Sirius is a solutions integrator, about $3.5 billion, give or take. Um, and uh, healthcare is our largest and only vertical. Uh, we are comprised, our team, our healthcare team is comprised of uh, prior uh, practitioners from the space. Uh, we have former CIOs and CTOs, uh, as well as chief data officer uh, on our team. Uh, so looking forward to spending some time with uh, with this group and looking forward to the discussion. Very good. All right, Aaron, we're going to start with you. How would you describe what you believe consumers expect in terms of digital interactions and support from their health system? 
Great question. So let me give you some real world examples. Uh, we do we do surveying for net promoter score for every patient that walks in and walks out of our clinics on a normal basis. It's in addition to HCAPs and all the things that you're supposed to do. We also believe in doing the quick NPS. The minute you walk out the door, you'll get a text message and you can fill out, you know, three questions. You know, what, do, what would you rank us from a scale of one to 10? Uh, what can we do better? And anything else you want to leave us information? It's amazing what we're told about that. Typically, our NPS before COVID was in the 80s, right? Most people hate the traffic here in Austin. Actually, it's not that bad if you compare it to Boston or Dallas, but people don't like it. Um, and of course, as you can imagine, we are a large urban downtown facility. So you have to navigate, you know, to figure out where's the buildings, those sorts of things are the typical complaints that you get. Once COVID occurred and we moved to a pure telehealth play, especially while surgery, elective surgeries were postponed, our NPS went into the mid 90s. What people wanted to see and feel and engage with was something didactic, something that was in their face that was responsive to them, something that was on their time that they could engage from whatever platform they wanted to, and something that was user friendly and intuitive. They didn't want to have to figure out how to unlock Pandora's box of navigating the patient portal. They didn't want to have to do all these things. They wanted quick, easy, on their time information to them and an engagement with a provider right then and there. So what consumers are expecting is something that actually more conforms to the consumerization of the rest of the industries. Healthcare has been so landlocked and traditional in terms of its reimbursement models that it never really adopted a lot of these digitization strategies. When we were forced to do it, it unlocked a whole lot of things. Number two thing, folks expect to be able to get information where they want it, when they want it. So if you're not paying attention to your digital properties, your website, your engagement tools, your chat bots, all those kinds of things, you're gonna be left in the dust. So those two things. Very good, lots there, lots there. All right, Vic? Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for taking up that question. I was I was really engrossed in what uh, Aaron was saying. I was trying to take some notes here. NPS idea is a really interesting one. Um, you know, you typically see it on the on the consumer side, so it actually makes a lot of sense that you're bringing it in into healthcare, right? So this whole notion. So you know, my, my view by by working with a lot of healthcare organizations across the country, large, small, community, academic, etc is that there's this big shift. And prior to COVID, I think the shift was a little bit more relaxed and gradual, if you if you will, right? Say, okay, you know, we really want to start to embrace this whole consumerism notion. Uh, and we started to see this, like, you know, in 2019, 2018, I think somewhere in 2018, um, we, we started to see a, a, a big shift in large healthcare organizations, large IDMs, you know, the Kaisers of the world, the partners healthcare uh, of the world, um, started to bring in this role around the chief digital officer, right? And, and their notion was essentially like, okay, how do we bring this whole consumerization and consumerism into healthcare? And a lot of these roles were being staffed from outside of healthcare. So retail, B2C, you know, entertainment, we just saw a new one about, I, I think it was Baptist, if I'm not mistaken, Some, uh, the gentleman came on as a SVP or EVP and CDO from Disney. Right. So these yeah. are these are like entertainment. Yeah. So these are these are entertainment uh, and, and retail business to consumer focused folks that are coming in. And I think that the the shift prior to COVID was more along lines of, you know, I think I think um, patients, which is all of us. Right. We we just we're we, we just make do with what we have, essentially. Right. We grumble about it and say, mm, you know, and kind of go, go along with the flow. But I think that this whole when COVID hit. This whole access to telehealth, just like we were talking about, Aaron, 
has really made it so clear to patients and like we can have that consumer experience in healthcare if we sort of work towards it. Now, you're absolutely right. Behind the curtain, there's all of this other stuff that has to be figured out, right? The reimbursement models that you talked about, the technology, the, the myriad applications that you have that you have to sort of bring together. And then there's the providers and caregivers that have to deal with all of those things and kind of orchestrate them, right? Uh, so that's essentially what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of, you know, movement in that direction. Very good, Lee. Yeah, I think in, in part it depends on how you define the consumer. So as a CIO, you know, one of my consumers are my physicians and my, my nursing staff, uh, in addition to uh, the patients that we serve. And I think, you know, if you think about the docs, the docs, uh, I think if you ask them, you know, what is your experience like using this technology? I think what they would say is they realize they would never go back, right? They realize it's here to stay, but they also, I think they wish it was smarter. I think they wish it was more automated and it did more for them. Uh, and so I think we still have a long ways to go in that space. In terms of specifically our, our patients, I think um, we have some patients who are sophisticated and they really want an want and, and expect an Amazonian type experience. Um, but I think most simply want uh, to have a reasonably user-friendly experience. They expect it to be non-clunky. Um, they expect it to not go down unexpectedly. Um, and they, they expect that certain aspects will just kind of be there like it is for other industries. So they expect to be able to book their appointments online. They expect to be able to you know, get their text appointment reminders. They expect to you know, be able to refill their medications automatically. All that kind of basic stuff they expect to happen. But I also think it depends in part on your geography. I think if you're in a bigger city, I think the competition for, uh, for this space is much higher. If you're in a more rural area, I think it's a bit more forgiving in this space. And that can be both a blessing and a curse, depending on, on how you're framed up. Very interesting. Very good stuff. All right. Let's go with the next question. Um, Lee, let's, let's start with you here. Um, what are some of the things that you're doing at your health system to meet those expectations? Yeah, so we're in the middle of an expansion here. We're, we're right now building a, uh, a regional uh, cancer center, uh, almost $100 million cancer center. And then on top of that, we're in the middle of building a, a $500 million uh, additional tower for our flagship hospital. So we're, we're expanding our, our footprint in order to be able to meet the needs of, uh, of our community. And within that space, we are looking at putting um, some really interesting technology in place in order to be able to better meet our patients' needs and, frankly, to be better at uh, what we currently do. One example of that would be RTLS. RTLS is something that's been around for a while. It hasn't always been as accurate as I think it was initially uh, promoted to be, and now it's getting better and better. And you know, as we look at uh, the experience for our nursing staff and our patients, et cetera, the ability to be able to understand where your stuff is or where your people is, is really huge. Uh, right now, our, our nursing staff, every time a patient moves from you know, their bed down to CAT scan or wherever they need to go, uh, they have to input that into the electronic health record in order to keep track of that. That stuff should be automated. It's crazy that we're in, you know, going into 2021 and nursing staff are still kind of manually putting that stuff in. That's the kind of stuff that we're hoping to automate and improve the experience for folks. 
uh, on the uh, patient experience side, we do have the patient portal, we have the EHR portal, uh, our telehealth scenario, like I think most places really escalated. Um, I kind of joke around here that, you know, we stood up telehealth at a day. The reality is we had telehealth in place for three years. We were seeing, you know, 35 patients a week. And then all of a sudden we were seeing 11,000 patients a month uh, when, when COVID hit. For my docs, it was a real struggle, frankly, to get them to participate in telehealth uh, kind of out of the gate. They didn't really see it as real medicine. I had good, difficult conversations with a lot of the docs around uh, you know, the value of telehealth and really trying to explain where it played a role and where it perhaps doesn't play a role. After COVID hit, uh, you know, prior to COVID, I couldn't get them to use telehealth. After COVID hit, I couldn't get them to see a patient in the flesh everything changed. And what they realized, because they were forced to do telehealth for the first time, what they realized is there really is a space where telehealth does bring what you need. And there's also a, you know, a fraction of those patients that really are not appropriate for telehealth. So they began to get their head around that. So now kind of moving forward, we have kind of a different framework for where telehealth may play a role. And right now, myself and our chief strategy officer are uh, co-leading an effort to uh, develop uh, an Asante platform for not just telehealth, but for digitization for our patients. Well, what does that mean, digitization for our patients? Yeah, so we're looking at where we can, we can bring technology where it doesn't currently exist, where it adds business and clinical value. So an example of that would be hospital at home. So right now in the middle of COVID, I think you know, most CIOs will agree that you know, we were scrambling to identify where are we gonna find beds? You know, we, we've got limited uh, space. Uh, we literally were looking at every nook and cranny in our hospital to develop space to be able to, uh, to care for our COVID patients. One of the options is hospital at home and not just for COVID patients. It, it can be appropriate for non-COVID patients as well. I can tell you as an ER doc, there were many times when you see a patient where you're kind of on the fence. Do they come into the hospital, we admit them overnight or do we send them home? That happens probably 35% of the time. And usually mm. you decide to admit them to the hospital specifically because they need one thing. They need IV antibiotics, they need somebody to check their pulse oximetry, they need frequent vital signs or a neuro check, something like that. If they're that close to being discharged and you have a framework in place that allows the patient to go home, and when they go home, they have continuous cardiac telemetry, they have pulse oximetry, they have the ability to uh, telehealth with a nurse uh, every six hours, uh, and they have the ability to be evaluated by a doctor once a day. That's a different framework than we've ever seen before. And that's one of the things we're looking at doing as well. Excellent, Aaron. Oh, Lee was hitting a lot of the nails in the same head here. So, so a few things. Let's talk about, uh, I'll give you some different dimensions, especially being an academic health system. So from a consumer expectation perspective, I also have the students to think about. I've got medical students. I've got MS1 through MS4 students, residents, uh, fellows uh, walking around that need to have that level of engagement, transitioning to medical school to suddenly becoming virtual, but then have to be sort of this hybrid model between the two because we started returning a lot of our MS3 and MS4 students to help us during the COVID response, whether they're doing contact tracing, whether they're doing rounds in addition to the residents, whatever else they needed to do, those students had to be engaged in a way that made sense. So again, making all the classes, all those all those components virtual when they were very traditional. I mean, if, you, if you've if ever gone 
and look at the gross anatomy class, they're cutting into a cadaver. Suddenly you're gonna make that virtual, but yet still getting the same experience, right? Luckily we had been experimenting with uh, AR and VR the year before that. So we already had a lot of dovetails we could immediately hop into, but it's, it's something to get some of your faculty to suddenly adopt that when they're very traditionally used to rolling in a $20,000 cadaver that the student's gonna cut into as a team. So a lot of those things from a consumer expectation is making sure the students are still able to get an experience and participate in the entire course of care across the entire continuum of care at our health system. Another dimension here that was interesting, the researchers, right? Research doesn't just stop. In particular, a lot of research went into now looking at COVID-19 data modeling, leveraging a lot of the systems and technology we have here to try to help accelerate uh, vaccines and different therapies, particularly in the early days when COVID-19 data was very sparse, getting that information out from the Northeast or from overseas in the MIAN APAC and starting to assess it here and looking at our geography and seeing what are some of those predispositions uh, going on in the community and who was gonna be affected. Sure enough, the Latinx community here was very much uh, disproportionately affected, but because of some of the things we're able to do, we're able to work with the policymakers here in the city to help put in policies to assist that population in greatest need. So it's really sort of that smart, didactic, engaging level of work using systems and tech and insight to drive outcomes. Then if you look at the clinical enterprise, of course, things didn't just stop. So you went to telemedicine, we're still opening up a, a multi-million dollar ambulatory surgery center with brand new ORs dripping in technology. There's still needs for new service lines being spun up. Uh, we had a partnership program for a new transplant program here in the region, uh, both pediatric and adult. Um, all these things still went live because the needs are still there. So the consumer expectation of making sure that things were at your fingertips, whether they're patients, whether they are caregivers, and my uh, component here, I had students and researchers and caregivers um, and everybody else to take care of, as well as the students, right? So the students expected a whole different type of experience. All those things are very important. Uh, and, and that total sum of engagement and levels of technology and insight are really able to, you know, catapult us through the past uh, eight, nine, 10 months now. Very good, Vic. What are you seeing uh, among customers? Yeah, I think that these two gentlemen have done a really good job outlining um, the, 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 the heart of the approach. I think the heart of the approach is about understanding who our constituents are, right? So who are these consumers? And in Aaron's case, there's more consumers of different kinds with different expectations than in Lee's case, right? And just understanding that it's not just the patients, right? It's the, it's the patients plus their families that come in to visit, right? It's, it's the caregivers, it's the IT staff, it's the students, it's the community in, in, in large, it's, it's other researchers around you and around the country that might want to share data, et cetera. And so I think that if you just sort of have a, uh, a map, if you will, of these different types of constituents or consumers, then you can start to lay the underpinnings for how do you actually, first of all, you understand who they are and then what are their expectations, right? And then kind of where are you in terms of being able to meet those right off the baseline? And then you can start to chip away at it because you're not gonna be able to come out the gate, right? And match like, you know, an Amazon or a Google or any of those experiences right off the bat because we're dealing with a very different sort of world than retail, right? And so, so you, identify the landscape, right? And then say, okay, who are these constituents? And then what are their expectations? Some of them might not be very reasonable or some of them might not be things that you wanna go after right away. That's totally fine. But as long as you have a well-articulated plan, I think that's really the best spot that you can be in, 
Yeah. So Vic, I'm going to give you a real world story of something exactly like you're talking about on a much smaller scale, just to give the audience some, some perspective. So when we were setting up our COVID-19 testing lines, remember in the early days of COVID-19, March was about the time here in Austin, we declared sort of an emergency from a city perspective. And so immediately UT Health Austin is like, let's set up COVID-19 testing. People can drive through with their car. All right, what's the traffic flow going to look like? How are you going to administer the test? How are you going to give the results back to a patient? It could be, you know, a POI or, or it could be actually positive. What kind of testing? Your serological, PCR, what are you going to do? All these things had to be addressed for numerous constituents. How do you keep your clinical staff safe? How do you keep the IT staff safe? At one point from an IT, I had several people down there trying to, trying to help make sure we get the systems there. We've got Wi-Fi and cellular connectivity in case that goes down. Guess what? We need the label makers. Here's the corporate card. I gave it to my director. Mm -hmm. Go to Office Max and Bison label makers. And he just did because we had to have that to be able to label these specimens, to be able to send them off to the lab securely. And, you know, all those things had to be flowed out. So to your point, Vic, about understanding all of the consumers that you're meeting, as a CIO, that is the name of the game. It is workflow, it is identification, and it's, and it's making sure that almost journey mapping each of those personas of how are they going to experience, in this case, in this limited experience, I was saying COVID-19 testing, but even in aggregate. So just to give some coloring. Excellent. Thank you for that, Aaron. Um, Vic, you were, you know, you alluded to this a little bit. Is it kind of a gap analysis exercise? And when you're doing that gap analysis, you know where you are. You can see where you are, but then setting that image up of the expectation, you can put that anywhere. You know, you could put it too high and out of reach. You could put it wherever you want. Again, we talked about what do consumers want? Well, does a gap analysis kind of approach help here? Yeah, I mean, it, it does, but that's not all you need to do, right? So there's this whole notion of, you know, gap analysis. First of all, you got to do a real gap analysis. You got to be true and honest to yourself, right? Because they're there's all sorts of gap analysis you can do out there that may or may not sort of show where you are. So you got to be very true to yourself. Say, okay, I understand kind of baseline. What, where, what am I starting with, right? Um, I've, I've understood and articulated these constituents or consumers. I know where I am. This, the, the next thing after that, and, and this is where it gets really tricky for CIOs, right? Um, and I, I have been um, on the other side, if you will, I've been uh, at a provider organization. I've served at a provider organization. And so I, I see kind of what goes on behind the curtain, if you will. The, the fact of the matter is, is that there are a significant number of technologies and applications that are running inside of the data centers or even in the cloud or some mix of the two that the CIO is responsible for safely and reliably delivering to every single one of those constituents, okay? Now, they, and so it's not, it's not, this is not a sassy world, right? This is not all sass. This is, this is stuff that was created circa 1970, 1980, working with some stuff that was created, you know, uh, in the sass era and, and sort of some mix in between. And then you start to add the, the notion of the ex expectation of these constituents to say, hmm, so I have this group of applications that I want to be able to access. And guess what? I want to be able to access them in a seamless fashion. And guess what? I want to be able to access them from wherever I want to on whichever device type that I want to. So now you've just taken your world and just like created this, this multi-dimensional challenge. So identifying the gaps or your baseline of where you are has to take in all of these different facets into play so that you can then understand, okay, if 
expectation is a seamless experience for this cohort or this type of, of user or constituent, then I need to understand what's in the bag or what should be in the bag for that constituent and how do I actually address it end to end. So I think long, that's a long way of saying, yes, I do believe that starting with a gap analysis is a good thing. Like even before that, you start with who are your constituents like we described and use gap analysis. But then you have to understand what is it that they need? What is it that they want? And how do I actually package all that up and give it to them with that experience? Aaron? Yeah, so actually, um, you know, we try to approach it like a clinician as we're doing the, the breakdown of it, right? And I'm sure Lee could really give us the, the educational lesson on this. But to the degree of it, it often starts with the S-bar, right? What's the situation? What's the background? Uh, what's the assessment? What's the response, right? So at a very high level, that's that sort of that SWOT analysis, gap analysis, say, okay, what does this person, group of persons, whatever, need? Then we go back through and we do workflow, right? I happen to have a workflow diagram here on my my desk here. And we go through each step of the clinical workflow and say, okay, what are the operational decisions? Who's the ownership of this? How the system's going to play? How would the EMR play in this? And then from that, it's, all right, what are we missing and how do we address that? And then those that community effect. But what you don't want to do is do this in a vacuum. I'm, I'm blessed here to have a phenomenal partner in crime with the chief clinical officer. She's phenomenal. So her and I really tag team a lot of this with a larger group. We work through these questions and have a great clinical informatics team that goes back through and tries to, tries to paint the picture like I just showed you. But that's how you do it. You do it as a group. You do it as a community. You rally the troops together around a common cause. And often I found that, if, especially when you're working with clinicians, if you follow their workflow, just as Sir Lee did uh, working in the emergency room, uh, that's how you, you figure out what do these people actually need and what is actually ailing them. Lee? Yeah, I really like what Aaron was saying there. Um, you know, I, I think doing a gap analysis could be interesting, but one of the challenges is the gap is constantly changing because the expectations are constantly changing. Um, you know, in my ITS division, we had a three-year strategic plan in place, something that's been in place here for many, many years, kind of over and over and over. And I'm blowing that up right now. Um, I, for two reasons. One, it was too complex. I, I pulled it, you know, I've been in, in this role for about two years. I pulled it like my first week to kind of review it and look at it. And, uh, you know, it was written in like eight point font, you know, it was like 30, <laughs> 35 pages long. And when I asked my directors and others, what does it say? I, you know, I got uh, varying degrees of, of uh, understanding. And so it became clear to me that whatever had been put in place, no matter how well-intentioned, simply wasn't lasting and it wasn't meaningful for folks who were supposed to be using it. And so now what we're doing is we're blowing that up and we're taking a very simplified approach and kind of dovetailing on what Eric just said, we're starting with the enterprise-wide strategy. So I met with my strategy officer. I actually had him come to our ITS division meeting to present the enterprise-wide strategy to the entire division, all 300 people. I then had him come to our next meeting that we had with uh, my directors and managers to present it a second time. So we could really kind of, you know, take it apart a little bit and really understand it. Because I think what I really wanted to go with this is we start there. Where's the, where's the enterprise going? And once that happens, then we can say to ourselves, okay, what capabilities, what IT capabilities need to be in place in order to support that vision? And then below that, what are the tactics in order to accomplish that? The other piece of it uh, that we're going to be doing is instead of having a three-year approach, it's going to be one year. And the reason simply mm. is that this moves way too fast. 
It's a very fast moving space. You want to, you don't want to be reactionary you, um, necessarily, but you, you want to be proactive, but you can't wait three years anymore. There's just no room for that anymore. And in the future, I don't know if it'll be three, uh, one year or if it'll even be less than that uh, with some, uh, some iteration of that moving forward. But at the end of the day, it's going to be simplified. It's going to be connected directly to where the enterprise is going, and it's going to be nimble at one year versus three years. Lee, I agree with you. I'm doing the same thing here, actually. So I just moved us to a one-year tech strategy, IT strategy that aligns to our organizational enterprise strategy, which is also in complete flux and growing and changing and morphing depending on you know new contracts and new business models and whatever else coming out. So I agree with you. That's the thing awesome. about that, though, is that I'm, I'm sure you're blessed like I am here in that you know, I have a phenomenal chief operating officer that I work with who who gets it, who is making things simple to understand. So it's easy for me to tie the IT components to that and say, this is how we help influence. Because the question you right. get from teams is, how do I affect this? Why do I care that we're opening up a new ASC? Well, here's why, right? Why do I care we're doing these things? Well, here's why. So it's important to have that didactic and, and to build that. Otherwise, you're going to be left behind. So I love what you're saying. I agree with I you. I agree with what you just said there. I, I think the one the one thing to keep bear in mind is that on occasion the IT folks really can identify technology that really kind of moves the organization forward in in a really meaningful way. You don't want to do that all the time, but occasionally if something comes up. You know, you go back to the old uh, Henry Ford quote. You know, if if I'd asked them what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, right? And so yeah. you know, you know, you really I mean, occasionally something comes up and you're like, we really need to look at this, and this is where it's going, and that's why what. Aaron said is so important, having that great relationship and that good didactic between you and your operations folks to, to you know, have the one plus one equals three. Yeah, and I would also say one more is a good relationship with your legal and compliance departments. And I'll give you an example. So one of the other projects, I'll put COVID aside for a second, that we're really focused on is building an opioid syndromic surveillance platform uh, with Texas HHSC. And they came to UT and said, hey, guys, can you help us do this? And so I engaged Google, right? I said, all right, let's see what GCP can do, right? Now, I have all the major cloud service providers, so I'm not, I'm not endorsing one over the other, but we decided to build it in GCP to say, what can we do? And so there, now you have an understanding of the needs. This is a huge effort across the entire city to help deal with opioid overdose uh, and addiction. And it's been a really neat process to bring people together, but it ties into our overall mission as a learning health system and pursuing excellence. So it sort of underpins that. So when folks say, why did yeah. we even talk to GCP about this? Because this is what we're trying to do, right? And then why do you talk to Amazon about this? And why do you talk to Microsoft about this? It's just each of those use cases have to fit into your strategy, but it took conversations with legal and compliance to get them there so that folks were like, okay, I get it now, right? And I understand why we're doing what, what IT is up to and not just creating busy work for everybody. Right. And Nick, one thing for both of you, Anthony, before you sort of switch this, I think that's a really interesting conversation that, that, that you brought up, this notion of, you know, driving towards, first of all, understanding what the organizational charter is, right? Where, where are you going organizationally? And then taking the IT group, which is traditionally typically seen as, or has been seen as a cost center, right? And saying, okay, how can we actually partner with the rest of the organization to bring us forward? One anecdote I will give you from my time over at the Cleveland Clinic was something that Ed March brought in when he was there was this whole notion around agile, right? So this and when I first went in, I was like thinking about this, it's like, wow, man, you know, I'm, I'm a software developer by, by training, you know, wrote, written a lot of software. And so I understand Agile, I understand the Agile principles and so on and so forth. I was like, how does that apply to IT? And so I wrestled with this and I worked with him on it. And the, the whole notion was to say, look, 
we need to start working towards uh, meeting expectations much more rapidly. This whole 10 year or three year or five year life cycle around making changes to technology and improving things and moving in different directions, too slow. It's not gonna work just to leave, just to your point, right? It's like, we've got to be able to keep with what's going on. We have to be able to address things in a very rapid fashion, but not in a vacuum, right? Aaron, to your point, not in a vacuum. It's like working with the rest of the organization to say, hey, where are we trying to go? What are some of the main goals that we have? You know, is it top line revenue? This is prior, all prior to COVID, right? It's like top line revenue growth over a certain period of time. Okay, well, that implies what? It implies a lot of MA. So, Lee, to your point, let's get better at being able to do things that we've been doing a lot faster while sticking with what the organization is trying to do and, and moving that forward, right? So, that, that's really interesting that you mentioned that. But the whole notion around gap analysis, I think. By nature, the term is very static, but the way that I think of this is in order to do any sort of analysis, you have to get a baseline. You've got to do the baseline. You've got to understand kind of where you are, where you're starting from in a lot of these different disciplines, I feel anyways. And then you could say, okay, now that I have a baseline, now I can start measuring my, my improvement, my incremental improvement in each of these areas. Yeah. And Vic, I think you said it exactly right, but it also takes reorganization, right? So I reorganized the IT leadership structure to fit an agile model, right? So we have a DevSecOps model that actually now replaced infrastructure. I banned the word infrastructure. It's more resiliency and DevSecOps all bundled together, working together as, as one larger team under a common leader. Uh, we've embedded these principles of agile into the IT structure so that it informs the work product from our PMO all the way down. The one thing that drives me nuts is people who call themselves agile, but they're really waterfall and they want to be agile and they're not doing anything agile. Number two right. is people who think they're agile doing sprint cycles of two weeks, but never involve the clinician until the very end. It's like, what did you just do? You did nothing, right? Three, if you're not doing CICD, continuous improvement, and also you're not doing QA on top of that, you're not doing anything DevOps related, you're not doing anything development related and your agile processes would be broken, right? You have to be constantly iteratively sampling and constantly trying to find where the kinks are to get faster, better, cheaper, smarter, exactly what Lee's saying and not give yourself a faster horse, but build a car. Wow, that's a lot of good stuff in there. Really, really good. All right, let's go to our next question. Lee, gonna start with you. All IT spending has to run the governance gauntlet, correct? How do consumer-facing technologies fare when they come up against other priorities fighting for limited budgetary dollars? Yeah, that's a really good question uh, right now. You know, for us, you know, launching the cancer center, building this tower, uh, standing up uh, medical office buildings, and then all the other projects that we're, we're doing. Right now, I just looked this morning at the number of ITS heavy projects currently in execution, and we've got 68 right now uh, currently happening. And you know that's, that's a lot. And so it's not just a matter of, from a governance perspective, not just a matter of, can I allocate money? It's really, can we allocate resources? I, I would say, you know, we don't, we don't spend willy-nilly, but we probably have more money than we have resources uh, for these things. So how do you compare those things? I think it comes back to what, what Aaron and Vic were just saying. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, if the proposal is directly aligned to the strategic initiative, then it carries much more weight as it goes through the governance process. And so that's why I think it's critical to understand which things are directly aligned with that. Um, you know, having said that, you know, 
you know, you talk to folks, frequently folks can make a strong case for something being tied to it when it really isn't necessarily directly tied. I, I see that mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, one, of the, one of the key words that drives me crazy is, you know, patient safety, for example. I see that all the time. And, you know, particularly as a physician, when I see that, I have to pull that apart sometimes and really say, okay, let's talk about whether this really truly is a patient safety issue uh, or not. Having said that, if you do have a great consumer-facing project, and it can be directly tied to where you're going as an organization, then I think it, it carries that heavy weight going into that conversation about whether to prioritize it from a resource perspective or not. Aaron? So I, I absolutely agree with Lee in that it does take IT uh, governance to, to really conform to spending. But something I've done here is, is try to involve all the other operational leaders on exactly what IT projects, IT heavy, use Lee's words, uh, projects are, what the cost is of doing business. And particularly with me, because I got research, right? So some of our researchers here, it's UT Austin, we're one of the largest R1s in the world. The amount of grants that we get and these giant dollar figures just come in out of, the, I'm gonna call from the sky, but they're like NIH grants or whatever, you know, usually disrupts the cadence of projects that we have going on. So it's like, all right, we're gonna do 50, this giant projects this quarter, and then suddenly you get a multi-million dollar grant to set up a, and one of the most recent ones was a pediatric um, a behavior uh, telemedicine service uh, that was more of a consult service with the school district here in the area that was funded by external partners, which is a giant, you know, prestigious uh, project that UT system undertook that asked Delmed to help lead that. Great. Like, those are all two thumbs up. But I sure wasn't planning for that, right? So now I have to somehow get that into the loop. So what I do is I try to bring, in my case, the operational leaders, the chairs, right? Our clinical chairs, our, our you know, uh, senior physician partners, like our chief clinical officer and, and so forth like that, to make sure folks know this is what's going on. So when you drop a giant child psychology uh, a pediatric referral network project on us to say, it's got to get live in about 30 days. Great. I'm going to support you, but something's got to give, right? Because the last thing you want to do is burn out your team. And so many health systems I've been a part of and been blessed a part of, they don't have that good cadence to how, how, how does this play with a larger ecosystem and what's the macro play? Because I keep telling people, this isn't IT, this is business technology. We're here to enable the business, right? We tee up the options, but we're, we are Sherpas. You as a business tell us where you want to go with all the data at your fingertips. So it's about transparency and shared decision-making. Yeah, and Aaron, uh, destroying your team while delivering all these great projects, that's not leadership, right? Saying yes, 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 and having everyone work 12, 15 hours a day and get sick and people quitting, that's not leadership. It's not, and, and healthcare in general, this is a general statement, is very reluctant to say no. And that's how you get in these situations where you're trying to do everything and boil the ocean and you have really unhappy back office teams, including IT, including finance, including HR, because they're like, it's humanly impossible and you're giving up your personal life and personal yeah. sanctitude and sanity to do this. And not that that's not gonna happen when you have a downtime or an issue at two in the morning or a major upgrade, sure, but those should be the outliers. That should not be your normal day-to-day. -day. Otherwise, you're never gonna be able to keep your team happy and an unhappy team is a bad situation in general. And Lee, that's, yeah. even, that's even more true with clinicians, right? Because clinicians, they, they won't leave if there's patients to be cared for, but there's always patients to be cared for. So, I mean, we're not gonna get into a whole clinician thing but it just is an issue. Uh, talk to so, briefly talk about the leadership side of having all this stuff to do and not driving your people into the ground. 
I'm really glad you, you mentioned this, uh, Anthony, because this is a central part of uh, my focus and what I've asked my leadership team to, to focus on. You know, I've heard for years about how our staff is overextended. Uh, when I attend individual staff meetings, this is the message that I heard kind of out of the gate. And I initially asked my, um, you know, maybe three months into this position, I asked the managers to present at our weekly managerial meeting uh, their process for prioritizing the work of their teams. And I told them at the time, um, this is not punitive at all. I simply just want to understand current state. Let's just go ahead and present it. And it created a fair amount of angst, frankly, amongst the managerial staff. Everybody did it. And some folks were more sophisticated than others, but it gave me a sense of current state. And what I realized is that these folks were really struggling in this space and primarily because they weren't getting all the direction they needed uh, uh, to date. So since that time, we've unpacked that quite a bit. And what we decided to do was we decided to categorize our work into portfolios. And so now we have four basic portfolios of work that any team participates in. There's two uh, that are internally governed and two that are externally governed. The two that are internally governed are administrative time and operational stuff. So administrative time might be team meetings, it might be your ETO, uh, stuff like that. Operations is all the stuff we have to do, and I don't care what else the organization is doing, if I need to replace my server, I'm replacing my server. That's all internally governed, we govern that ourselves. Externally governed by the PMO and other committees are project work and optimizations. So on a monthly basis, instead of the PMO saying, okay, here's all the things we need you guys to do, it's a different story. We package up our availability in right. ours, and we deliver that to the PMO on a monthly basis. And that has changed the dynamic uh, tremendously. Yeah. That, that makes so much sense. It's like, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, but, but like, Aaron, so, I mean, go ahead, Aaron. Point, Aaron and then Vic. Yeah, the whole point, Anthony, is being agile, right? And and being able to respond aptly so that <clears throat> in Lee's situation, they just came through a, a colossal uh, human and technology feat with dealing with some of the uh, natural disasters that were going on in the Pacific Northwest. Here in Austin, uh, we had our COVID-19 response and then suddenly getting asked uh, by UT Austin to, to help facilitate the return of the students and the Longhorn football team and all the contact tracing systems with the stand up and all the apps and all the integration, right? That had to be done like in three weeks. Well, okay, you can't, you can't pivot and do that in the middle of opening up a new ASC and everything else and do that unless you have a, you have a good handle on all these other dynamics. It's impossible. You're going to fail. Right, yeah, right. It's, really, it's, Vic, go it's ahead. All, it's all, yeah, it's, it, I mean, this is, this is all, the heart of it is all a process. It's all about how you actually do and consume work, right? And, and, you know, one of the areas that we didn't touch on, but it's implied, and I think, I think we touched on it a little bit, but, you know, when you have this group of folks that's working their tails off for whatever reason, right? Lack of direction, not good ways to consume work, not good ways to say no, no good intake process, whatever the reasons are, uh, and and we uh, in IT and healthcare are are always you know keen to say yes. Well, not only are we impacting our our staff and teams on the ITIS side, but there's a lot of failed expectations because we miss we miss when we're trying to deliver something to the clinicians. We miss when we're trying to deliver something to the the, you know, the stakeholders. And then there's this whole really bad 
vibe going on, this bad juju that goes on forever and ever, because guess what? Ultimately, you get budgeting and funding from the leadership of the entire organization. And so if you're already known as somebody that's like struggling with delivering on your expectations, then guess what's going to happen to your funding moving forward? So this ties back a little bit to this whole uh, uh, spending and budgeting. It's like, if, but to do that, you have to change the model. Like you cannot just continue doing it the way that you were doing stuff previously over the last 30 years and expect to be able to keep up with this rapid agile basis. And I know, I know we've said agile many, many times, but that's really what it is. It's about saying, how do you consume work? How do you put these gates in front of it? How do you prioritize it? And how do you give the rest of the organization a clear picture in terms of the number of hours that your team has available in a week, in a month, in a year, or whatever it is, right? So that's, that's my take on this whole thing. All right, I wanna, I wanna bring in uh, another issue here that I think is important and, and discuss this a little bit. Um, and then our poll question's kind of on this. Um, Lee, let me start with you. How do you split your time between what can be described as KTL as keeping the lights on activities and those that are more innovative or leading edge? So, you know, you've got that pull and, and it can be different and I thought about this a little bit this morning, I suppose if you have a chief innovation officer versus if you don't, um, if you don't, then I assume you're supposed to be innovating. I would think everyone's supposed to be innovating all the time, but that's kind of a weird dynamic, right? You're a CIO, you get a chief innovation officer. Does that mean I don't get to innovate anymore? That's a whole nother discussion. But anyway, um, Lee, your thoughts about your day and what percentage, or you don't have to be that specific, of time you need to be thinking about not just keeping the lights on, but doing more than that. Yeah, that, that's also a very good question. Uh, I think part of it is, are we innovating externally for our consumers? Are we innovating internally so that we can do our stuff better? And um, I, I like to look at both of those, uh, those elements. Here within my division, we launched uh, an internal process improvement uh, framework and methodology uh, in the past uh, around OKRs. And that has been a really effective tool for us to first identify where there are gaps and, and second to execute on, on filling those gaps. And that has led to increased uh, space for our teams to do the work that they're doing. And so from an internal perspective, I feel pretty strongly that you have to have a framework in place to accomplish that. And I've allocated actually up to 10% of folks' time to be dedicated to that work. And that goes back into the, uh, into the internally governed piece of the portfolio that we were talking about. Um, externally, I think, you know, it depends on your model. You can look at the Mayo model, for example, with Halamka. You know, they have a whole team out there, right, for their, for their platform to look at innovation and what they're doing in the future. And that really frees up the, the main ITS team to do the, the normal stuff, right? They're executing on normal projects, they're doing break fix, they're doing certain optimizations, they're doing their quarterly releases, they're doing their updates, et cetera, et cetera. And they're just kind of chugging along there. And we have another team that can dedicate all of their time to doing that. We don't quite have that luxury. You know, we're, mm. we're a three hospital system. We're, uh, we're not kind of framed up for that. So what we have to do is we have to make sure that we understand where the organization is going as it relates to the kind of the normal stuff and kind of the bleeding edge stuff. And, you know, part of my role as CIO 
is in these executive meetings that we have on a biweekly basis is to really talk through which pieces, which elements can really drive the business forward to a better spot. So I talked before about the, the hospital home and other uh, technologies. You know, even as we look at some of the things that we're doing right now, uh, for example, with our tower, you know, some of the stuff that we could have elected to put in there would have been nice and basic, or we could have done things that really will meet our consumers where they need to be met, not just now, but, you know, as they say, where the, where the, uh, where the puck is, is headed. And so, uh, you know, part of our role, I think, as, you know, in technology, as CIOs, as leaders in technology, is to introduce those concepts to the business leaders. At the end of the day, those business leaders, they're smart people, right? They got there for a reason. And, but frequently, they don't fully understand where technology can help take them. And so part of our role is to translate that and distill that and curate that so we can present some of those concepts and ideas to them, and then they can look at it and say, yeah, that's where we're going. Aaron? Yeah, Lee hit it right out of the park. That, that's exactly the way it should be done. So uh, with respect to organizations that, that are phenomenal and world-class, like Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic, that have, have all these roles, I still would say that it's incumbent on the CIOs, regardless if there is a digital officer or innovation officer and all these other titles that are out there, transformation officer and you know every other CXO word out there. <laughs> As a CIO, your job is not just to keep the lights on. If that's what you think being a CIO is, quit. Please do all of us a favor and get out of the job because you're, you're ruining it for all, all of us who are <laughs> partnering with the business in my case, with the chairs, with the leadership, uh, which each pillar and mission of our organization here and understanding where they want to go exactly to what Lee said. They may not be able to articulate it in technical terms what they want, mm -hmm. but they absolutely know the outcome they want. Example, we didn't want to open up an ambulatory surgery center that was typical. We typically you see them completely bare bones because ASCs are all about making money quick, get surgeries in, get them out, boom, boom, boom. No, we wanted to have everything digital. Why? Because we want to track quality. We want to track the data coming out of the systems to get better. So we're not just doing endoscopy procedures. We're actually seeing what's happening during those times, making sure the scopes are cleaned, making sure all those things happen. So the quality and the data we're getting out of our ASC shows that it's a top running OR. This is a small example, but our chief clinical officer wanted that. She goes, Aaron, this is what I want to see out of this OR, right? She happens to be an OBGYN, which is phenomenal because she really understands the life cycle of a lot of these systems. And she's like, make it happen. Okay, let's make it happen, right? That takes systems, it takes interfaces, it takes integration, it takes data provenance, it takes normalization of data, it takes importing the EMR, all this other stuff. She's like, I don't care, I just want it to happen by a certain day. Okay, great. That's the partnership you gotta have, right? Exactly to what Lee's saying. But if she didn't trust that I knew what I was doing, then she wouldn't have even asked the question. So the goal is to build trust, to get out of your office and talk to people, Talk to them in a language exactly like Lee was just talking about in a way it makes empowers their ideas and their mindset. And then you tee up the options, say, here's how we can make it happen. You know, then it takes funding and resources. But so be, right, it. Right. be the innovation engine, yeah. be the idea person. You don't have to come up with everything yourself, but you have to enable and make it happen. Very good. And like you said, then it takes funding and resources. That's that step we talked about before about capacity management and all that. Vic? Yeah, so it and yes, I, I agree with what uh, what the both of you have said. And I think that uh, what's really interesting is what's really interesting is that there's this, you know, Gartner had come out with this term a while ago around bimodal, right? So mode one being, you know, keeping the lights on, keeping things running, mode two being future looking, right? So Lee, as you mentioned, you know, Mayo Clinic has 
you know, Halamka was focused on this future stuff. And, you know, Chris is working on sort of not only keeping the lights on and everything else around there, but also helping support, Aaron, to your point, helping support what this innovate, you know, this innovation arm is, is working on doing by helping to facilitate uh, technologies. And again, this whole analogy of getting the puck to move to, you know, going to where the puck's going, et cetera. I grew up with cricket, not hockey, so I can talk in terms of cricket <laughs> better than I can hockey, but that's okay. Um, so I, I think that I think that the the notion here, and one of the things that I have seen that can take some of the friction out for the CIOs, and this is interesting for me, right? Just look at it from the technology lens, without having the uh, the the currently without being at the table worrying about the notion of bimodal, right? So I can look at it sort of in a little bit of an abstracted way from the other side. One of the things that I see that has been able to take friction out from uh, from what the CIO does on a, on a regular basis is around sort of approaching this notion of the experience, right? So if we actually agree, which we all have, that we want to figure out our constituents, we want to go after experience, and we want to make sure that applications are reliable and systems are up and all of those things. If we actually just take one half of a step back and say, okay, what is it about these these applications that really, you know, that we could do to make it easier for us to take existing applications and future applications and enhance the experience and the delivery and everything else, the constituents. So this is where we, the term that I came up with, it's, it's essentially saying, you know, you've got to think about this whole thing kind of like woven together as a fabric, right? So it's like, there are things that you need to be able to pull together in, as, a as a nice, tightly knit, high quality, you know, cotton, high, high fiber count fabric, uh, which is one is around the delivery of the applications and how do you actually deliver them to these constituents. The second is around about, you know, the devices and the types of things that you actually um, are, are consuming these applications on. And then the third piece, which is intrinsic to this whole dang thing is security, right? So you got to do it in a secure fashion because you can't be like, okay, sorry, you know, don't worry about security. We've got the perimeter and everything's good. Aaron, to your point, if somebody's watching this who's a CIO and is happy with perimeter defense, they should probably go look for something else to do uh, <laughs> as well, right? So, um, so, so the notion here is like, okay, so this we call you know just user experience fabric, right? So it's like these three pillars or three arms, and embracing that approach really gives the CIO the ability to say, okay, we're going to build this control plane around these three important things so that. The existing things that we have can be delivered with great experience and whatever else is getting created or will be created in the future can drop into this framework so that that part of it is now sort of taken care of and then you can go focus on all these other pieces. So that's, that's what I see out there and I think that it gives a lot of sort of streamlined access to things. All right, listen, I'm going to try and sneak in our poll. We're running out of time, but, but I want to because I wrote it and so I want to try and sneak it in. Um, and I think it's interesting. So our panelists can, can answer this too. It's an agree or disagree. CIOs, and, and here's the numbers, the key here. CIOs should spend at least 25% of their time on non-keeping the lights on work. Now, Lee, I think you mentioned the number of 10% that you had people, uh, you know, allocated for making sure they were getting. So 25 may be too high. So if you think it's less than 25, you want to disagree with this. If you think it should be at least 25%, you want to agree. So go ahead and answer that. Um, and our, like I said, our panelists can as well. 
Um, so we'll take a look at that in a second. Um, you know, uh, we're almost out of time. So before we check the results, uh, Vic, I just want to give you an opportunity for a last word today. It's been an incredible conversation. Um, I've learned a lot. And so, Vic, uh, any last words, advice for our audience? Today? Unfortunately, we didn't get to a couple of um, audience questions, but we're almost out of time. So, Vic, your thoughts? Yeah, no, th thanks for thanks for bringing this together. And really, Aaron and Lee, it was, it was great having this conversation with you. I, I just think that, you know, all of the stuff that we talked about, I think the practical aspects of what the two of you have mentioned as you're sort of leading your respective organizations out to the future, whilst, you know, you're, you're not saying, hey, I'm just going to be a futurist and look at all this stuff. You're still making sure you know, you're taking care of your existing applications and your existing users and your existing constituents and tying in this whole notion of, you know, weaving together with the business, I think is just is phenomenal. And I really wish that, you know, it wasn't so much of a, you know, it's almost, you know, if you rewind a little while, you know, a couple of years back, it seemed like a fairy tale, right? Pick your favorite, right? Snow White, Seven Dwarfs, whatever. Pick any of your fairy tales, right? It's this whole notion of being able to um, take the business, drive the business forward whilst taking care of IT just was so foreign. But I think that what you gentlemen are doing is just phenomenal. And I, I really appreciate the time and, and the wisdom that you've provided today. All right, very good. Let's see, let's see about our, uh, our poll results there. Let's get uh, you guys to guess. Percentage agree, give me a number, percentage agree, Aaron. 60% uh, agree. 60%, Lee. Uh, I'm gonna say 70% uh, agree. Vic? I was going to go 70, but Lee went 70, so I'll go, I'll be the Dudley Downer and go 50. 50? Oh, man, you went in the wrong direction. You really went in the wrong. Lee, Lee, you're the winner, and the results are 94% agree. That's awesome. So, you know, yeah, that is awesome. people want that is lots very, of very innovation. People awesome. want lots of innovation going on out there. Well, that's about all we had time for today. That was fantastic. Um, regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. So with that, I want to thank our panel, Dr. Lee Milligan, Aaron Meary, and Vic Nagy. And I want to thank our sponsors, Sirius Computer Solutions and VMware. And I want to thank you, our attendees, for coming. With that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.